I am so delighted to be here again with Brad. And Brad has uh, been following our series on the measurement problem and uh, some of the discussions we've been having regarding the observer and the problems with measurement in, in the quantum world and just in the macro world as well. And before we get started, I wanted to read just a little bit from this book. As I was telling Brad, one of the 10 books that I'm currently working on, so I haven't finished any of them. But this is Against Method by Paul Feyerabend. It's a book that was written in the last century. And um, he has very, very interesting ideas about science. He's quite a famous guy if you look him up. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit here. The history of science, after all, does not just consist of facts and conclusions drawn from facts. It also contains ideas, interpretations of facts, problems created by conflicting interpretations, mistakes, and so on. On closer analysis, we even find that science knows no bare facts at all, but that the facts that enter our knowledge are already viewed in a certain way and are therefore essentially ideational. This being the case, the history of science will be as complex, chaotic, full of mistakes and entertaining as the ideas it contains. And these ideas in turn will be as complex, chaotic, full of mistakes and entertaining as are the minds of those who invented them. Conversely, a little brainwashing will go a long way in making the history of science duller, simpler, more uniform, more objective, and more easily accessible to treatment by strict and unchangeable rules. Scientific education as we know it today has precisely this aim. And uh, I think that speaks to part of what is the measurement problem in that it's people that do the measuring. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and the further away we get from our reality, as far as um, like what, what our senses can pick up. If we start moving outside of that realm, now we have to have instruments involved. So you're adding levels and layers to that. And when you start going all the way down into the quantum realm, there's multiple levels and multiple um, variables that come into the equation that make it very difficult to actually even know what you're measuring. So uh, I design automation equipment and a lot of the equipment that I design has to have uh, measurement, various types of measurements. Sometimes it's uh, measuring length, uh, measuring, uh, detecting leaks, you know? So we have very precise equipment that, that does leak detection. Um, we have machines that uh, detect for errors in a part using vision systems. Um, there's one that I'm gonna talk about a little bit today where we had to measure the light output of an LED to see what hue it was and whether or not it was in a proper band for it to be acceptable as a good part. Um, so, you know, I listened to a lot of the conversations with Jonathan Pichot and Verveke and Peterson. And, and uh, one of the things that I heard John Verveke said, and I love John Verveke, don't get me wrong, this is not disrespectful, but he said that facts uh, uh, exist outside of a narrative in one of the recent conversations they have or they had. And I just don't, I don't see it that way. 
I guess. Um, and what I'm going to hopefully talk about today will at least get a conversation going. I might be wrong. I don't know. But um, the way I kind of see objective and subjective facts is that it's on an analog scale and that subjective is on one end and objective is on the other. And I don't know that we can actually get all the way to objective where the, where the fact can exist without a narrative supporting it. And um, I'm not saying that that can't happen, but from our perspective, it needs to have some context around it to support how that fact was derived and in what conditions, you know? So, um, and, and also, you know, the measurement problem, when you're trying to determine facts, how are you measuring the facts and what are you measuring them against? And one thing that I learned through my profession is that all measurements are actually a comparison. We are comparing something to something else that um, when you take a tape measure and you hold it up to a board, it has all these increments on there and a scale and, and you measure the board, you're comparing the board against this standard of a tape measure. But that tape measure was manufactured against a standard. There's something that determines what an inch is, what a foot is. Um, so there's, uh, there's just a lot of things that go into establishing a measurement that we don't, we take for granted because it's already been established for so long. We never even think about it, but I have to deal with it in my job. So I thought maybe I'd share it today and, and maybe some people can, you know, add to what I have to say or, or discredit it, <laughs> <laughs> whatever happens, but I just, to, just to add to the conversation. So um, if it's okay, I'm going to share my screen. Yep. This is really very exciting. So I'm going to share the screen and um, let's see what happens. Can you see that? I can. Is there going to be sound on this? I hope. Well, okay. So, so what you might want to do if if you have you did you click the sound button on the share screen before you started sharing? I did not. Okay. So stop uh, sharing and okay. go back. And then look at the lower left-hand corner. When you, when you hit share screen, the lower left-hand corner will have two buttons, one for optimizing sound and one for okay. optimizing video. Click both of those and then, then bring it up again. There we, there go. we go. All right, so first, this is, a, can you see the screen? I can, there's a big machine there. Yeah, that's a big machine. Um, so this is a machine I designed a few years ago, and it's an automotive part. I really can't get into uh, details too much just mm -hmm. because of confidentiality and things, but an overview like this is okay. Uh, so this machine took a part into a, uh, an overmolding press that overmolds plastic uh, over top of a metal part. Prior to that going into the mold, the part had to be verified. It had to be inspected. So... And this, uh, this tooling that I'm showing right here, this is the part, that, that, that U-shaped piece. Uh, there's four lines of feed that come into it. And I'm going to switch over to uh, just a view of that assembly. 
so this assembly has um, gauge tooling in it. And this gauge tooling contacts the top of the part and measures it from the surface of the, where it's contacting it to the surface that the part's sitting on. And then there's a determination made if that part falls within the specification of the drawing of that, of that part. So um, what I wanna do is show a video now of, of that gauge. So you can see, can you see that now? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay, so this is how the gauge works. As it's displaced, it's changing values on this screen. So this gauge is actually uh, like a resistor inside, a variable resistor, like a rheostat, uh, electromagnetic. As it's displacing, it's changing. I'm going to stop it so it not, doesn't play too long. Um, what that gauge is doing is converting a linear displacement of that plunger to an analog voltage output between zero and 10 volts DC. That voltage is then converted from an analog signal into a number. So um, you can kind of tell that this contacting the surface, there's, there's variation in, uh, in that contact point, how far this displaces. This, this whole sensor is manufactured, so there's variation in this. As this displaces, it doesn't produce an exact linear output. And what that means is for every, uh, say, millimeter of stroke, it doesn't produce the exact same change in the voltage variation. So you, you wouldn't have a straight line slope. You would have a slope that has a curve or bumps or irregularities in it. So whenever we measure something, automatically you have that all those variables coming in and then that uh, that voltage coming into the sensor that's then going back out to the computer that also has uh, signal noise in it just from the fact that it's in a factory there's all these different surges in, in the voltage and changes in voltage and then it goes to an analog card that converts it to a digital pass fail signal so there's error in that card, there's always rounding errors. Um, so what we do in design to get around this is, um, let me see if this will open back up. Maybe I'll close this. The command's doing something new. So we have a gauge block that we put in here. And, we, and when we call it, we call it a master. And for some reason, this is locking up, Karen. I might have to stop sharing for a minute. That's okay. You can just talk it through. I think we can see the gauge block there. Okay, so, so that gauge block is set at a certain, certain height. place, certain height. Okay. Right. So there's three different steps in it. One is for the low variable of the of the part. One is at the mean, so the nominal dimension of the part, and one is at the high end. So what we do is we put that gauge block in there, and then we contact it with the probe at each level of that of those steps. 
And by doing that, now we determine anything in between them, anywhere, anywhere in between the high and low is a good part. So we take out all the variables that come into, um, there it goes. So you can see there's three different steps here. So that takes in or takes out all the variables that are introduced into this uh, by- so it, gives, it gives you a certain amount of wiggle room in- Yeah, it's, so we don't have to take a, um, the measurement between here and here, we don't have to actually convert it to a numerical value. It's just, if it, if it lands between the voltage output of this step and the voltage output of this step, it's a good part. So, now, if we didn't do that, what would happen is we'd have to calibrate this and then measure that displacement. And then you're gonna have all the signal noise and everything coming into it. It just, it, um, it makes it very muddy to try, <laughs> to try and get an accurate dimension. So this is just, a, um, it's just an example of some of the things we run into. So, and this is measuring down to a thousandth of an inch. This isn't even anything really tight. Um, but what, what I, what I found interesting when I started doing this job is, is that they call this a master and that the part is measured against the master. So it's, it measures up to the master. Yeah. See what uh -huh. I mean? So, so we're yeah. comparing, we're comparing the two. Now we do this because it's easier and we take out all the variables, but when you're machining something, you don't have necessarily a master part, you're creating the part from a, from a blueprint, right? So um, I'm gonna share another video if it's okay, where this guy's talking about um, master calibration blocks that they use to calibrate measuring instruments. And I'm just gonna let it play real quick and then you can see what he's doing with these gauge blocks. But not. Um, but the main reason that we probably use gauge blocks today is for calibration of precision instruments. So you have a pair of calipers on that shop floor or a micrometer that you're using to measure parts every single day. Well, how do we know that that tool is measuring the way it's supposed to? The answer is gauge blocks, right? These are the reference standard. These are how we know that our instruments, actually not even micrometers and calipers, but this linear height gauge right here, our CMMs all use gauge blocks to calibrate and make sure that they're measuring exactly what they're supposed to be measuring. If you don't have a good set of accurate gauge blocks or using somebody that does, you have no way to actually say that you're measuring what you're supposed to be measuring. So, so again, there is a comparison between with that digital output of that micrometer he was showing and that gauge block. And he, he used a, a zero set feature on there. Once he put it on one inch, he, he actually set it there. So now his measuring instrument is calibrated to that tool. Um, okay, but <clears throat> I mean, this course sort of begs the question. <laughs> Somebody created the gauge blocks. Well, here we go. You're ahead yeah. of me. <laughs> So here's the gauge block he was actually using, right? So it's made by a company, Mitsubishi, that they make all kinds of measuring instruments. So this, this particular gauge block is held within 0.1 micro inch. With a micro inch is one millionth of an inch. So this is 10 millionths of an inch or one one hundred thousandths of an inch. That's how close that that block is held from end to end. Um, so 
and it, what I think this is kind of interesting, it says in the description down here that they're used to calibrate instruments and check the accuracy of other gauges. So you check, use this to check other gauge blocks, right? So you're, you're already ahead of me. So this block was made from a master that's even more accurate than this one. So this, when it was made, was compared to something even more accurate. And if you think of this through and think about Jonathan Peugeot and his hierarchy and that somewhere out there, there's an inch of inches and a master of masters of what an inch is that all inches were derived from. So originally, <laughs> I guess I can, I can flip this back to, uh, to me for a while. So the, uh, the inch was the width of a man's thumb. That's what it came from. And then it's, wow. it's, it's evolved <laughs> all the way to this, where it's, uh, it's an, basically it's an arbitrary distance that is calibrated by these precision gauge blocks. So, but what I, what my, my objection to saying that things are, can be ob objectively true is that you can always add another decimal point. You can just keep going out and out and out. And how accurate is accurate enough? Where's quality? Where does quality start to exist on that line between subjective and, and objective? You get well, what and I'm the, saying? the inch of inches, <clears throat> if it was human made, still has error. <laughs> and even potential for error. Yeah, even measuring it. Um, I wanted to show you this, if you can see, can you see this? I wonder whose thumb was the original guy that were determined these <laughs> well, there's actually there's actually two stories. One is it's the width of a thumb and the other one is it's one twelfth of a foot. And that came from the Roman foot, which I don't know how big a Roman foot is compared to, you know, the imperial foot, but uh -huh. this is, this is a uh, digital caliper. Can you see it? I'm going to turn, uh -huh. I'm going to turn it on here. So yes, right now there's Very just probably some arbitrary numbers there, right? 9.318, Yeah. So when I close that, that should read zero. So on this here, there's a zero and I can zero that out. Did it zero? Yes, it's zero now. I can, I can hardly see my picture. So, yeah. the, uh, but that's pushing with a light force. If I push harder, did it change? Yes, now it's 0. It, 0.0010. Yeah, so <clears throat> when you get into measuring things, finesse, and how much force you put on it. And this is like one of my comments I left on one of your videos is that you're kind of dealing with quantum fields that are cl clashing together. And in those, you know, where, where does that happen? And the more force you put on them, the more they're gonna to compress together. So I've actually worked on machines where we had to monitor a press force of something being pressed together to a height. Well, when you're pressing it together, everything's compressed, including the material. And when you take the pressure off, comes back up a little bit, you know, it might only be a few thousand. So we have to actually overshoot the press dimension and then let up and then check it afterwards to see what that uh, relaxed state is. So there's so, there's so many things that come into how you would measure something and two people don't measure things the same way. I can't use a, like, a, like I have two different calipers are made by two different companies, digital calipers. And I get different readings when I use each one. They're calibrated just slightly different. So they're, I mean, they're within a thousandth of an inch. A human hair is three thousandths. So that's, you know, that's very small, but there's still error there. 
so this is in a realm that we can comprehend. This is in the realm of a, of a thumb. When you get down to the quantum realm, how do you, how do you calibrate that? I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that you can, because you don't have a master to calibrate the instrument to. You don't even know really what you're looking at because we can't perceive it. I'm not saying we won't someday, but I don't think right now we have an ability to, to reach that far down. I don't think we have the ability to reach far out either. So the speed of light is a good example. I don't think we know what the speed of light is. I think we have an idea what it is. But the way we measure the speed of light is we, we bounce it off something and measure how long it takes to come back. We assume that it, it takes no time to bounce off something, which is a strange concept in my mind. It has to go to complete zero <laughs> velocity and then back. And is it coming back at the same speed it went out? We, we don't know because we can't, if we have two, an emitter and a receiver, and we have a wire running between them, the signal to say, start the light emission and to tell the receiver to look, it's which one's what's getting there first. We don't, there's no way to tell the receiver when we sent the signal because the light is faster or is as fast as the electric signal. So that's kind of, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe we do know what it is, but I can see that there's a probability or at least a, it's plausible that it's not accurate. We don't really know what it is. And well, we don't I heard, know. I heard something the other day and I, I'm just sort of barely remembering. So I'm probably wrong, but that the, that a meter is actually that what a meter is, is actually somehow tied to the speed of light. It could be <clears throat> that. I mean, that me, the, the meter of meters is, is not something that was, yeah, that was on, that was a, a thing that they measured and said, okay, this is going to be our standard that a meter is actually a certain division of, a, of the speed of light. I shouldn't have said anything without looking it up first, but no, no, I think you're right. I think it is based <clears throat> on something like that. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's an increment of something that's how far light travels in an hour or a minute or whatever. But even measuring time is like, I mean, that's the atomic clocks are I think the closest we got, but there's still error there. And mm. um, but it's good enough for us to do amazing things, you know, even even uh, you know machining parts and things. Um, well, I was going to say. What you guys do, kudos to you. I mean, I look at that piece of equipment <clears throat> and I just think what a, what a miraculous world we live in <clears throat> that human beings are able to produce something like that that can do that kind of work and with such precision, even though it's not perfect, you know, it's good enough. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um so when we're measuring something and we come up with like uh, a certain part is one inch long and we say that's a fact, um, we need to know a lot of things. But well, how did you calibrate your equipment and uh, what temperature did you measure that at? Because that changes it. You know, there's there's a lot of factors that go into that. So I'm just curious what you think. Is it, is it possible to say that a fact 
from our perspective can exist without a narrative that at least qualifies how that fact was derived. Well, no, I don't think so. And, and, but it's not, not just because of um, human intent, but because of the way language works, because a fact has to be stated in terms of language yeah. and language is coming out of a human thought pattern coming out of a human mind and um that in itself is filled with so many variables and different ways in which people think about things and i i just don't see there has to be a narrative there has to be because people have intent whether they think they have intent or not and so every single word that you utter there's an intent there and you can't divorce yourself completely from the words that you use. You just can't. Now, right. I guess you could take a fact and hone it down to the simplest possible language and get 100,000 people to agree on that language. And, but you still wouldn't know because every person in that group may be thinking about it in a slightly different way. And so there's got to be narrative attached to that. Right, right. And when I was thinking about this earlier today it was um so like math is a comparison it's one side equals another that's that's what math is it's a it's a measurement in a way right mm -hmm. so when we get to like saying that um so like the math that i put on my drawings for the parts that equals this part now that part now it's like a narrative equals the math in a way it's uh what it's like my theory becomes something real i don't know mm -hmm. if that makes sense so now it's like it's an embodied reality in our world and we call it something whether it's uh you know so so whoever made this you know designed this and then this becomes a digital caliper so we give it a name and all, all the math that went into making this equals this so there's a there's a bridge there between the narrative and the facts too. Um, if that well, makes and, sense. I mean, you had a purpose for your math, right? Yes. You, you had an intention in doing that math to produce something. And it seems to me that there, there's a purpose in everything. <laughs> how do you take the purpose out? I, I just don't see how you can take the purpose out. Right. I mean, what Glenn talks a lot about how with um, like software programming, a computation becomes instantiated in the real world because there's the, the computation has a purpose. You're, you're building that computational structure right. for a purpose that it will be instantiated in the real world. Right. Now, maybe you could create a computational structure that has no purpose, but I, I don't see how that would work. You know? <laughs> well, you don't have anything, you don't have a master to compare it to, to either. So you don't, for something to work, for, for the objective facts to be good enough, there's a measurement there against its intention. Yes. So if it, if it has, if it has no intention, then well, you don't have to do anything because it doesn't have to work. It's just 
random things, I guess. Chaos. Well, and that that's what get <laughs> this is where Jordan Peterson comes down at the very, very pragmatic level, right? That action requires a value structure. Right. You have to have a goal or something higher, or you would never move forward at all. And so action itself is predicated upon a value structure. And then action, like the caliper, pushes against something and measures whether or not this is an appropriate action. And if it's not an appropriate action, you find out, and then there are consequences. So in a way, everything in life is us measuring reality and seeing whether or not we measure up. Measure up. What do we measure up to? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, you know, your, your conversations with Michael Levin, is that his name? Uh Yeah. So he's talking about the, the, you know, this electrical (laughs) code or whatever it is. That's it really started making me think about like, does, does our soul fill our body or does our body fill our soul? Is, Is there something there? Is there a master that, that we fill up? is there a purpose that we're called to and then our physical body fills that well where did that come from and i know you've asked that question it's uh there's an intention there well it's funny you should bring that up because today i was writing some stuff down this is just rough draft so it probably doesn't make any sense at all but um I was reading in Colossians chapter two, I believe, where it's talking about how we are rooted and built up in Christ. So we're rooted in Christ. We're built up in Christ. There's another place in scripture I can't remember right now that says we are constrained by Christ. And uh, so in a sense, he is the soil in which we put down roots and he is the air that we breathe. And you know, trees are made of air. I heard that one time that that it's the ingredients in air that make up the bulk of what trees become. <clears throat> right. So he is the form into which we grow because the scripture says that we are in him and he is in us. So roots grow down from the tree and they must grow in some sense based on the character of the soil they're growing in so if it's very loose loamy soil the roots can go down deep and get you know strong in a certain way a bit but if it's rocky soil the roots will kind of go out and fit in in between the rocks and so the roots conform to the soil that they're in and uh so i came to this thought what about the many worlds interpretation, like the Copenhagen interpretation of, of, uh, of uh, quantum physics, which is that the quantum world does not come into like physical reality without an observer. It's when we look at something that it comes into reality. Well, what if as we're moving ahead in this world of Jordan Peterson's where we move into time and we press against the world, when we make wrong choices, we head down a path 
And the only way to get back to the main path is to repent and turn around and come back because it's like branches on a tree. If you're going down the main path, you branch off onto a bad path. You have to repent and turn around in order to get back to the main path and start heading forward again. You know, the, the many worlds interpretation is that every time something happens in the world, that creates a new universe. <laughs> so there's trillions of universes out there. Well, maybe that's so, but the trillions of universes are the ones in which I made a bad choice and I built a world around myself that is a bad world because I'm headed down a wrong path. And if I turn around and come back and get back on the main path again, I can be back in the world where things are good. <laughs> I know that sounds convoluted, but no, but it, it doesn't just, actually. It, it really made me think about how, you know, I've said many times in the past, and I can't prove this, but somehow to me, it's to say that Christ himself is reality. And that, but it's, it's reality in the real sense of reality. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And when he says, I am the truth, that word truth in Greek can mean both truth and reality. So if Christ himself is reality, then there is a way in which as we grow up into him and become more like him, then we are, like you said, growing into this form, growing into the, the master calibrator or the mat. What do you call that thing? Uh, it's a master gauge. Yeah. Master master gauge. Yeah. We're, we're growing into the master gauge. We're getting more and more like the master gauge as we grow up into him. But if we shrink from our responsibilities or if we go off in a wrong direction, we miss that opportunity to grow up into him. And so that's, that's interesting that, was today. <laughs> that you brought this up because that's ex I was actually going to bring something up very similar to this. So um, we need masters in our life. And for us, I mean, ultimately, you could say it's Christ, but in a lot of ways, Christ is too far away from us in, in mm -hmm. a sense where we can't see how he acts it out in the world. We can read about it. We can see how he acts out in other people. But so I was trying to think of examples and I'll, I'll run this by and see what you think. So like discipline a child, for example, you have you have another analog scale and on one end is justice and the other end is mercy. And depending on the context, we need to be heading towards one or the other. It's mm -hmm. not always one direction. It could yeah. be heading the other way. So how, how do we know how to navigate that space and which, which way to go? Um, and I always tell my kids this, if, if you want to learn about um, how to manage finances, you don't ask somebody that just filed bankruptcy. You want to find somebody that is a master at finances. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. that, that there's a, you, you watch people, or maybe you try and, and recall situations with your parents when you were younger and how they handled it. So there's um, a, a master out there for you to look at to try and navigate whether you should implement justice or mercy in that situation. Um, and if you don't get it right, I honestly believe you have to repeat that again. 
yeah. It, it has a way of keep coming back in your life until you get it. Until you start to see how to get it right. At least that's been my experience. I'm a slow learner in some things. So, you know, I've had some, had to keep repeat, repeating lessons until I started to figure them out. So, so going down a branch, you know, and I kind of get that where you're going the wrong direction, but on something like discipline, where there's, there's two opposing, you know, does that make sense to you that, that which way we're heading in that, in that particular field or that particular space, there's a right way and a, and a wrong way. And, and we need something to guide us. And that's where we need a master to really teach us how to do that. Well, so. yes, yes, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Let's think about, so you know, I've talked before about how art is made up of all of these binaries like that, like light and dark and <clears throat> complementary colors from orange to blue or, right. or um, saturation they're not, from very desaturated. They're not one or the other, they're somewhere yeah. in between. You, right? you get yes. to choose anywhere along there. Right. Every right. time you every time you make a brush stroke, you have to choose somewhere between here and here. Right. Or if you're if you're going from very desaturated yellow to very saturated yellow, you have to choose somewhere along there. And each choice that you make depends on the context in which you're putting it. And and the and very often the the context will change your choice even as you lay it down. <laughs> Because you think you're putting down something that's dark, but actually, if you're putting it down next to something that's also dark, it's going to appear, maybe it's not as dark as the thing you put it next to. So you think your dark is actually dark, but it's actually light because it's lighter than the thing you're putting it next to. So every choice you make is like that. So to imagine that we can somehow get it right, this is where I think the scientism goes off the rails, is that they imagine somehow that they've got it right all the time and that we have to listen to the science and follow the science. There's no way you can get it completely right because you're choosing along these, these binaries at every single point in time. And uh, so your, your mercy and justice thing that you're talking about and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. When I'm choosing along that scale, if I choose too far over on justice side, then I have to stop and think to myself, what was my intention when I did that? Was there a hardness in my heart that was filled with judgment and criticism? Or was I actually uh, reacting to the situation and doing something with more justice because it was merited and because it was out of love and for the good of the person and if i go too far towards mercy what was my heart when i did that is that because i want to be loved i want to be liked i want to be be needed i want to be applauded i want to be needed or was it because i could see that in that situation what love required was more mercy every choice that we make is so fraught yes right so so that's I want to get back to the subjective and the objective. Most scientists don't live over in the objective world. Most of us don't. It's somewhere on there. And every situation is different because you don't have all the information. You know, it's just impossible. So like 
Peterson talks about chaos and order and where we should be in chaos and order, but it actually lines up on multiple different scales like that. Mm-hmm. So when you're going to paint that, <laughs> paint your painting, there's, there's a balance. It's not even a balance because sometimes you have to go all the way to the other side. It's not staying in the middle. It's knowing where to be on that, on that scale to get it right. Um, I think staying in the middle somehow is anathema. I mean, I, I don't think there's, is there ever a time when staying in the middle is a good thing? I mean, let's no, talk about that. No, I don't think so. But I hear a lot of people talking about staying balanced and I kind of get what they mean, but it's like, no, it's, you're not right in between mercy and justice. You're, you're being where you need to be in that context of that, of that situation. So you need to be able to move between the two. And some people can't do that. Some people can't discipline their kids. They can't use justice. It's, and mm-hmm. I've seen that happen and it's terrible, but I've also seen the other extreme where it's just rigid mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, that doesn't, doesn't end well either. So, mm-hmm. and, and so many times I didn't get that right, but at least I tried to be aware of where, it is, you know, and then learn from that and then talk to my kids and say, I'm hey, look, I screwed up. You know, I should, that was a little too harsh or, you know what, you got away with something there. And I was too merciful. I should have really leaned on you a little harder. So there's nothing wrong with going back to somebody and talking to him about that either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if it's okay, I want to kind of come back to this, this master idea because, I, and I, I mean, I'm not just going to just talk about measuring things on a machine. That's, it's like trying to bring those, um, those metaphors or that, that experience into, into something that's usable in our lives. So there was an industrial revolution and all these companies started to make components and sell them. And most companies made all the components for their, uh, like Ford, they made all that Ford had their own standards. GM had their own standards. Everything was and it all worked. They had interchangeable parts. Interchangeable parts, I think, actually started in the firearms industry because they were making rifles and all the parts had to interchange. But when they got into um, like World War II, where all these different vehicles were coming together on the battlefield, when they tried to maintain them, bolts from this truck wouldn't fit this truck. They, they, they were close, but they wouldn't quite work. And so there was... Um, a push for standardization and ANSI, which is the um, American Standard Institute. What is it, ANSI? National Standards Institute is what it stands for. And American National Standards Institute, they took and took the, the inch and they made it something that's, so Ford was using the same gauge blocks as GM and Chrysler and everybody started to use the same uh, standardization of bolt thread diameters, pitches of threads so that they would screw together. So there was, um, in a way, it was almost like monotheism where like the masters were all integrated into one set there, you know, and the inch of inch came into mm-hmm. existence. So, um, 
but if you think about that, isn't that dogma? You know, in our conversation we had a few years ago, I talked about dogma, and I think this is a this is a good example of it. I'm going to read a, def, a definition: a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as an incontrovertibly as incontrovertibly true. But an inch isn't anything. It's a, an inch is a social construct. It's the width of a thumb. So, but some organization or an institution said this is an inch and by doing that you know we were able to put people on the moon and create all these amazing things uh, that we have nuclear power plants and which couldn't have been done without that dogma of what an inch is and i really liked your conversation with glenn when he talked about how there needed to be a a covenant between language and truth um because I think all of these things apply to language as well. Was Webster's intention of a dictionary to try and create an institution of, because I, and I know we've talked about this before, that every word is a, is a sound that represents a metaphor. That's a definition of it, the metaphor, but the sound is the word. And that there's a tolerance around that metaphor, just like there are with these gauge blocks that I was showing you. And you get too far outside of that and the word loses its meaning. And that goes back to your point you were making earlier in our conversation here is that all, all that metaphor and what people mean by things, it's very critical that that's ironed out. And that, I mean, I'm going to use the, the, the example of trying to define what a woman is today and how crazy it is that that's even a conversation, but it is, it's a conversation out there because the dogma over what a woman is, is not allowed to be in, in the conversation anymore, or at least some people. Well, is it partly because dogma has become pejorative? <clears throat> yes. Right? yes. Rather that, than thinking of it, maybe, I mean, the word axiom came to mind that, that maybe instead of dogma, we could say that there, there are certain axioms upon which everything else has to be based. And if you don't, if you don't have some incontrovertible axioms to work from, then you can't build a right. So, so that that's that's true. I want to go back to my example of Ford and GM. They each had their axioms mm -hmm. of, of what their gate, but somebody had to unite those two, and it was some somebody outside of Ford and GM did that. Well, so my husband is in the tech technology sector, and he talked a lot. I can remember. I think this is back around the two thousands, maybe. <clears throat> early 2000s, when they were having all these meetings of different corporations together with the standards, whatever the standard is in technology, I can't remember, maybe it's an ANSI of some sort. Um, and it was all around whose protocol was going to be followed. Yeah. It wasn't like they were going to come up with a new protocol, but they were going to pick some company's protocol as the one that everyone else was going to have to adhere to. And if they didn't, then we wouldn't be able to have things like Wi-Fi and stuff like that, because you, you've got to right. be following a protocol in order to accomplish those things. And so. Um, so the definition I just read of dogma is it's laid down by an authority. And so without a master, without an authority defining the master, you couldn't have Wi-Fi. Mm hmm. 
So is, is that it's like all the axioms are agreed upon to be this and that at least in my mind, from what I'm seeing is like that, that could be considered a dogma. Now, a religious dogma, like you said, that's just, oh, you can't talk about that. But um, when you're measuring things, you have to have dogma of what, what a centimeter is or an inch or what a kilometer, whatever, whatever's coming into the, into the, the experiment so that you can actually replicate it again or other people can replicate it. It has to be something that's calibrated against a master. And I, I mean, so as I was thinking about all this, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but maybe the past three or four months a lot, it's just how that's how we measure ourselves too, or we're measured against a master. We always are about something, something outside of us that, that is more skilled in a certain discipline than we are and that we have to measure up to that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that like, that, that that hierarchy is something that you can't escape and if we try or if there's an attempt made which i think is going on in our culture today to tear down those masters to get rid of those standards of what a person is to strive towards then you end up falling back down into almost almost like polytheism again where I think there's a verse in the Bible that said that Israel scattered and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. So then you have your own axioms. And so you can't have a functioning culture because you're all using different, different structures personally to guide you. Yes. So, well, this kind of goes to Jordan Peterson when he says the ideal is the judge. And that's just, it's just a reality. The ideal is always the judge. <clears throat> now, right. I can wish it were not so. In in my mind, I have a certain. I when I think of a beautiful woman, I can I can imagine I can probably see some woman that I've already seen, and I think that's a beautiful woman, and that's an ideal against which I'm judged all the time. <laughs> I judge myself against that ideal, even though you know I try really hard not to do that, but I still. I'm always thinking, you know, I, I don't measure up to that ideal because that ideal is a judge. Well, I'd love to just get rid of that ideal and say, why did there have to be beautiful women in the world? It's not fair. It's not fair that some women are tall and willowy and, you know, and they can wear clothes so well and, and their skin is perfect and, and they, they don't gain weight and, you know, but, but then if I stop and really think about it, that woman who is an ideal she is that because she works at it all the time. She is always, and she's got some ideal in her mind that she's working towards. So right. I am judged against the discipline that required that's required for that person to be who they are. And, uh, you know, when Jordan Peterson uses that phrase, the ideal is a judge, he's talking about how when Christ returns, he will be the judge. Now he is the ideal. When he returns, he will be the judge. But in a sense, he's the judge all the time because we're always looking at him. He is what we aspire to. And every time we can't, like you said, we don't even know what that is because it's too far above us. Every time we miss that mark, then 
we ourselves are judging us. It, it is. It doesn't even require somebody else to judge me against that. I myself am doing that. Yeah, you know, you you know in your heart that you're you not know, measuring up. Yeah. So the ideal is always a judge. It's just a reality that we have to live with. So the world desires to knock down the ideals because we don't want to be judged. But if we knock down the ideals, then how can we ever aspire to anything? You know, we'll all meet the lowest common denominator. And there are a lot of people that would like that to be the reality that we're all just ending <laughs> at the lowest common denominator until the lights don't turn on. Yes. <laughs> because that's Did, what you ever it, watched that old TV series. I think it's called Jeremiah. I don't remember that. No. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very illustrative. I could only watch the first few episodes because it got so dark after that. I just couldn't handle it. <laughs> But it was about it. It's a one of these dystopian nightmares where everybody above the age of puberty gets some sort of a virus and they all die. And only the people below the age of puberty survive. And so the, the series starts about eight years after that time. And so what you have is a bunch of young 20s and younger than that. And they're what are managing the world. All the lights have gone out all the skyscrapers have fallen into disrepair. It's dog eat dog. You know, it's just, there's like nothing working. Lord of the fly, Lord of the flies, but yeah. taken to another level. Right? Large. Yes. Yeah. So that's, um, so that's just something that that's, that's been on my mind that, that science uses dogma all the time in their measurements and then every, but they don't, they wouldn't call it that. No, 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 no. They would never, they would call, never it. call it that, but it is, I think it is. I mean, that's. Um, well, it wasn't the key when you, when you read the definition, I think you said it's an agreed upon. They're a principle or a, principle or set of principles laid down by an authority is incontrovertibly true. Okay. That, so that's what it says as a, as dogma. So if that's a religious authority, it's a no, no, but if it's a American national standards Institute, it's okay. So there there's, it's just an arbitrary thing. And, and there was a battle between whose standard was going to be used when ANSI set up the inch standards, because Ford was going to have to retool or GM was going to have to retool, you know, they had to buy all the new gauge blocks. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it makes was, you wonder it, if the, if the gauge block manufacturers were behind the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That could be. <laughs> then they morphed into the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> so there's there's something else I wanted to share about this too. Um, just some some verses. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about uh, Leviticus. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, which is a dry measure. Uh, a just hin, which is a liquid measure. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So God is instructing them to have weights because I actually heard someone talking about the, um, the silk road and how 
in the trading centers on along the Silk Road that they monitored to make sure that people traded fairly. And then after the trade, they would all go and have a feast together and that people could commune, I guess, you know, in, in this world, they didn't want it to become corrupt because then it would lose all its value. So one of the things that I've, you know, I was curious about some of these verses, so I read up on them. And so when it's a trader would buy wheat, he would use a different weight scale, a heavier scale, a heavier weight, you know, a balance scales, what they use. So he would get more wheat when he would sell it. He would use a lighter one. So he would sell less wheat. So he would be always skimming that difference, like high frequency trading, <laughs> but with wheat. Um, so he's always skimming that difference between the weights. So that's kind of on a personal level, but it does talk about like um, Proverbs 20, differing weights, and differing measures, the Lord, or both of them are abominable to the Lord. Differing weights are abomination to the Lord and a false scale is not good. So um, I, there's a lot of verses that talk about that and a lot of verses that talk about money, which is also something that is no longer uh, measured against the master. That's why we have inflation today. Because they're not, they don't. So what we do in our monetary system today is an abomination of God because it's not anything fixed. You earn money and it's worth less when you go to spend it because it deflates or, it, you know, because of inflation, it goes down in value, you know? So that's that skimming. Oh, who's getting that difference? So I, I don't know. And I thought about verses like how the measure we use will be measured onto us. That kind of goes back to what you were talking about, your ideal of a woman. You know, if you have that ideal, you're going to use it against yourself or not against yourself, but measure yourself against it, you know. And then God's or Jesus said, didn't he said, um, you can't serve two masters. And you think about this in, in this context where something that you're measuring up to, well, if you have two of them, that's differing weights or different measures there. It's not, you're not going to really measure up to either one. You know what I'm well, saying? I, I'm going to slip this in here and hope it gets by the sensors. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. If you have two genders that you're trying to, if you're trying to measure up to two different genders at the same time. Right. Right. Not going to work. You can't serve two masters. Right. And now let's just ride right by that and talk about something else. Well, well, <laughs> it could work if you were by yourself. But as soon as you bring culture, uh, you know, a, a community into it, now there has to be some kind of way to establish an axiom that the whole community can, you know, gather around and not everybody's individual axiom because it just then then you just have the tower of babel well and i mean at the end of the day this comes down to the very almost pedantic notion that you can't have your truth and my truth there has to be a truth <clears throat> towards which we are all looking and i mean i had this discussion hour upon hour with Carl. I don't know if you remember Carl from the very beginning of the channel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was very opposed to the idea that there is a truth 
Well, not not that he, he was not opposed to the idea that there is a truth, <clears throat> but he was opposed to the idea that the truth could be known because he felt that the truth, all, and, and I agree with this, that the truth always has to be above, has to be almost like unreachable so that we are always striving for the truth because it's that striving that is what keeps us moving forward. <clears throat> Right. But but Christ himself says that when we know him, we can know the truth because he is the truth. So maybe we're not knowing it in the sense of being able to measure it. Measure it. Right. Right. Yes. Because because the Lord says that he is unmeasurable. He is unquantifiable. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to bring that in because I, I originally started this conversation with that you know, subjective and objective, and we can only get so close to objective in measurement. And that's that I want to make sure I'm clear about that, because it, mm -hmm. it is the we can know that there is truth. But it's not. Um, it's not something that you can measure. It's oh, there's always a like we see a reflection a, through, you know, like through a, a dark mirror, you know, that's what it talks about in Corinthians that our senses can't pick up everything. And I, and I also have this, I mean, it made me think about it with the quantum and how um, you had, you even talked about it, where it comes into reality when it's observed, but we have a very narrow observation field of what we see. Are, are we, are we capable of bringing the full thing into fruition or is there something else that's helping us see too? Does our uh, subconscious mind help bring things into being? Does, does God's spirit in us help bring a more fuller world in, into focus for us? I, I mean, I just, just going back to the machines and stuff I design and what we run into with our, our limited capabilities as far as perception, it just, I just don't think it's just us. So observing the quantum realm or a particle and a quantum, you know, if you're trying to look at entangled particles or whatever, what's really happening there. There is a truth there. I'm not sure we can measure it. I'm not, not you know, maybe we can down the road, but we can't do it now. So, yeah. I mean, there's obviously a truth there because it allows us to do things in the world, <clears throat> right? Yeah. allows us to manipulate things and use them to create technology and, and all of that. <clears throat> but um, I'm not, I'm not at all sure that we have an idea of the depth of that truth or the breadth of that truth or the length of that truth. Um, yeah. I really like this thing that you said at the beginning when you said, um, the part is always measured against the master. I mean, that that's just a truth that is so pregnant with meaning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and as I thought about this, it really so many verses and stuff came into my mind, you know, about even like the law that we have, the, the common law and how that developed and, and things. And, and you're measuring things against the standard there always has to be something that everything is measured against. And then that's in a hierarchy um, 
like the master inch there's some, there's always something above 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 and um so it, yeah i don't know um if anyone else will chime in in the comments i'm kind of curious to see what people think about about this but i guess kind of i wanted to go back to like the idea of the, of a narrative around so so in in the talk that Verveke had with Peugeot and Peterson, they talked about the Ten Commandments and how are those just propositional facts? I don't I don't think they are. They're in a context of a story, like Peugeot said. Um, but they're truth at the same time. We shouldn't murder, right? Because a lot of the and I, I like to call this little this internet thing like a neighborhood. <laughs> it's like a, a you call it the corner little corner of the internet, but it's like a neighborhood, you know. And people come in and out of the neighborhood, but everyone's bringing different ideas. But for me, I'm not like Peterson's. Why I like him so much. I'm very pragmatic. How how does this? How do I take this and take it into my relationship with my grandkids or or my neighbor? Um, my wife or, or whoever how, how do i live this out in the world how do i how do i how do i measure up to a master and i and I, i'm gonna just bring this back i gave my testimony in church probably three or four years ago now um and i didn't even realize it until after i was done that when i went through my testimony i i talked about all these different people in my life that taught me different things and different aspects of the character of God where they have become a master in a certain like prayer or unconditional love um, or forgiveness people that went through horrific things and they forgave the people that did it. And they actually ended up in a decent relationship with these people. Like, you know, so all these different people were like masters to me that showed me how that could work and and how how to navigate that um you know do i hold um resentment towards someone and forgiveness and how do i navigate that i've seen and had and when i'm dealing with things do you ever notice those people come into your life that you're you're never left without somebody to show you what what's possible and i i wonder like is it because I'm looking for that or is it because it's putting in my path or maybe both? Um, have you had that experience? Well, I've had it both ways where somebody comes into my life who is that person for me or could be that person for me. And I can either go the direction of trying to follow that model or that example and living up to it or i can go the other direction of of being irritated that there's somebody who's so much further down the road than I am. <laughs> and it kind of depends on where i am in space whether i'm having a pity party or whether i'm in rebellion or well to, to all, all disclose full disclosure <laughs> yeah i've been there too so yeah i know but they came into my life yes at, at a time when i had some choices to make what color blue or orange am i going to put on this painting and they're there kind of trying to show you and it's not ever necessarily exactly the same where you just copy them but they're showing me is 
that there is a choice and that there is an analog scale that you could go this way or this way. And a lot of times and they're showing you what's possible, what's possible. And that, um, and, and that, th that there is a choice and that if you go the right direction, whichever direction that is, it'll go well with you. Mm -hmm. And, and so then that takes faith on our part to actually move towards whichever, and usually it's the opposite direction I want to go, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, what is it in us that makes us always want to do battle against the best? I mean, <clears throat> I guess if I could answer that, there would be a Nobel Prize in the wing, <laughs> or, or if I could write a book about it or something. But um, I certainly find that in me. I mean, Romans 7 could have been written about me for sure. And uh, and yet I can, I can go on sometimes for maybe even years at a time where I imagine somehow that I'm, that I'm doing it right. And then, and well, then, then I get, just get brought up short, like, oh, man, there, yeah. there is a master and I am not it. <laughs> so you may learn how to navigate that. And this is a good example. I have two daughters. The, the oldest daughter is very sensitive. She's very um, relational. She, she wants to be, you know, when she was little, she wanted to be held. She wanted, you know, she loves one-on-one -on -one time, all that disciplining her was a stern look. So I thought I had parenting down. She was easy. Then we had our second daughter and she, you know, anything you did, she'd just bring it on. Let's see what you got, buddy. You know? <laughs> so I had to learn that, 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 the discipline and how to deal with them and how to interact with them are totally different. And each, each had their own context was so, so when you have, when you do get things right and you need to put it on autopilot, that that's the kind of dogma that we have to avoid because when an anomaly comes, you have to say, okay, this is how I've always done it, but is it the right way to do it now? Mm -hmm. should, should I go the other way? You know, you have to assess, assess the situation and even get counsel or talk, you know, that that's always helped me too, is talking to somebody about it that, that maybe has been through it. That's, those are those people that come into your life, you know, well, that's why I always say the anomaly is a gift. The anomaly right. is a gift from God, exactly calibrated to my need at that moment, because he can see I'm on autopilot. Right, And he loves me anyway, and he's going to make a way for me to come back to him and to see the truth. And so right. this perfectly fitted anomaly comes into my life and I have to figure out how to deal with it. Right. And then I have two choices. Do I turn to him in that moment and seek his face and seek his strength and his. So that's the, or do I just follow on on my merry path, you know? <laughs> so that's when as we learn these things, and that's what I was kind of getting at earlier. It's like, if I don't deal with that anomaly properly, it'll come back. It'll keep coming back until I learn how to deal with it properly. And then once I do that, you know, and Berbeke said something not too long ago. I, I said this a long time ago. I said that love 
is a failure to love properly. And he said that love is a failure to love, to love why or uh, sin. I'm sorry. Sin is a failure to love property properly. And he said that sin is a failure to love wisely. It's very similar, but it's, it's like understanding the context it's missing the mark. So instead of being merciful, I was looking for justice or the other way around. So that once we learn those things, then we become a master for other people. And there are verses that talk about how um, we will comfort people with the comfort that we've received. So in the situations where you've go through, you've gone through hard things, I've gone through hard things. Um, but I am acutely aware of somebody that's going through that situation. And I have a, a, a good friend. I won't go into the whole story, but she lost a child. And through that, she has developed a ministry where she finds people, finds people that are, that their child has leukemia or something. And she comes alongside them and sees them right through the whole thing, even past when the child dies. And I, as horrible as that is, she's using that tragedy to bring comfort to people that are going through it as much as she can. I mean, that's just so hard to imagine or wrap your head around, but, mm -hmm. um, but we're in tune with people that have, that have gone or that are going through things that we're going, have gone through. Have you noticed that too? Mm -hmm. There seems to be more empathy to notice it and then more wisdom to know how to be available to them. And so, well, I also have a full disclosure here and that is that, you know, I, I went, <clears throat> I've talked about this a little bit and I won't go into the details now, but I went through a pretty traumatic time back in 1989-90 and uh, <clears throat> then I moved out to California and for several years after that I would be acutely aware if someone else was going through a similar situation but I would run from it hmm. I was not at all in a place where I could enter into that with somebody else and walk with them through it and uh, and then I would castigate myself for for um, distancing myself from that person's need. And I would feel so guilty about it, but I just couldn't seem to overcome the resistance. But over time, you know, I guess time heals all three things. And over time, I was able to come more into alignment with being willing to walk through that with people. And um, I mean, God taught me a lot of things along the way that brought me to that place where I could be more available to folks who were going through things like right. that. Right. <laughs> As you were saying that I've gone through several things that were similar, but I wasn't a master yet. I don't, I'm not even a master at anything. Well, really. maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the thing because I right. wasn't really in a place where I would have been right. helpful to anybody. And so God, God had to bring me to a place where I could be. Helpful. Right. Yeah they needed a lifeguard because they were drowning, but you were drowning too. Yeah. So you would have just drowned together. You, you, but you see it, you notice it. Mm -hmm. And that's probably part of the process too, you know, um, is knowing when you can help and when you can't. So, mm -hmm. which is always something that's kind of interesting to me. I think about how, if, if we were to compulsively say yes to things, 
just always say yes and agree to people, it would not go well with you. But if we compulsively say no to things, it doesn't go well with us either. And and so that's learning when to yes say yes. And no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's somewhere, yes, but tomorrow or maybe next week. Yeah, right. So there's always that that analog scale that we're on, on all these different areas in our life. I, I've thought so many times how to put that into some kind of a, like a word picture or something. It's almost like so hard to do because there's so you many. figured out, let me know, because I've, you know, I've wanted to take all these principles and elements in art and, you know, I've got, I've got them all sitting down there with their analog scales, but then figure out how they, <clears throat> intersect at various moments you know there's a line here and yeah. this one intersects right. at 30 percent, and that one intersects at 20 percent. and that's because, funny you said that because i was thinking about almost like a sphere and in that sphere yeah. there's all these lines yes and so if you're at the center of all the lines you're at the center of the sphere but if you move toward towards one you're moving on the other ones too so yeah. it, it it uh but that's hard to conceptualize i well, think you it, get it, it almost looks like the Bon, have you ever seen pictures of the Bonnach-Tarski paradox? Or maybe it's not the Bonnach-Tarski paradox, but it's that thing that Eric Weinstein always bangs on about that the hop, the hop field. I maybe think I'll, I've heard him say something about that. I'll put a link that. to the hop field in here because it's got all these slides going on. Um, anyway, it kind of looks like that because the here's the key i mean to me the whole key is this and that is that when you're trying to create a, a work of abstract art or non-objective art <clears throat> there are all these principles and elements of art that you have to keep in your head <clears throat> that when you're painting you're not really thinking of those things but they're still kind of integrated into who you are so you're making all these decisions as you go but if there's no focal point to the painting, there is nothing that brings any sort of meaning to the work. And the focal point will make everything else fall into place. So there has to be a focal point. Otherwise you just have wallpaper. Otherwise you just have a bunch of marks that don't make any sense. The focal point is what makes sense. And I think what you've been talking about is that the, the master, the part always has to measure up to the master. That master is the focal point and there has to be a focal point. And there is a lot of modern art nowadays that doesn't have a focal point. And that's why people will stand in front of it like in a daze, like, what am I looking at? And pretend they like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to the Pittsburgh Art Museum with my youngest daughter and there were some pieces that were just like, they just capture you. And other ones, you know, we, it, it just, I don't know. Yeah. Just, they just weren't good, you yeah. know, at least to me, because I didn't really see that something that made you, and that's, that's kind of what, so like what, what an artist does, I was trying to, uh, trying to think this through with the photography, because I take pictures of animals and things. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm do, doing is telling the observer what the focus on. I'm telling them what, what the focal point is. Mm -hmm. 
and that's what you're doing in your art. Right. You're, when you when you compose the frame, you're you're guiding the viewer to the place that you want them to look just based on the composition. Right. Because we're built and and this has been shown through many 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 centuries of observation. We are built to see a certain to to focus on a certain quadrant in the the rectangle and that quadrant is based on the golden rectangle and on the golden mean and that golden mean is roughly like a chambered nautilus <clears throat> you know and so the target is there and if you take a if you take a rectangle and divide it into nine parts there's four different intersection points that focal point could be at any one of those four different intersection points, and it would be very intriguing to the viewer. Right. So that's the, want to look there. So when you compose, you're probably the rule of thirds unaware of yourself. Yes, you're composing in that way without even thinking about it, because yes. that's also what attracts you. Right. Like maybe For that the eye of the elk will be in one of those quadrants, and that's you're you're drawn to the eye because that's what makes the elk make sense to you, you know. Right, right, yeah, yeah. and where you place it, and if there's something else around, like I I was really into taking pictures of hummingbirds. We have this flower called the bee balm, and they come to it like crazy. So trying to take a picture of a hummingbird is is tough because they're just so fast you know so to get the shutter speed and everything right and getting their eye just perfect in uh -huh. that in that composition <laughs> with the flower because the that flower brings that extra level to it yes so that i mean just to take a hummingbird's picture out and out in the air it's kind of nice but to see it actually engaging with the flower that is reality right more real to us or something so yeah, is that, so is, when you do that kind of composition, you're almost creating like a little oval in the center that's going through all four of those points. And, you know, you've got your flower in part of the oval and you've got your hummingbird in another part of the oval and you're focusing on the relationship between the two. You know, I just lost your visual. It says connect a device running camo. Mm. And there's a picture of a, uh, like a plug it back an apple plug-in yeah it's probably it's an apple iphone is what i'm using so oh okay it may have went so dead maybe maybe it's time for us to wrap it up anyway but we could continue this conversation <laughs> <laughs> another yeah. time for sure yeah it was very good um i think that uh, there is something to like the master drawing our attention to things that are important and paying attention that's well that's that that attention thing has just been coming up everywhere and a lot of videos that i've been watching and and so i think that's kind of what the what the masters is there for us is to, to show us what's important and to focus on that just like you draw the person's eye to the specific uh, part of your painting that's uh and that takes practice, right? I mean, you have to practice at that. The master has to practice at that. And uh, so we're all kind of like learning this as we're going along. And how, how to bring quality into, into our lives is through 
um, is through knowing how which direction we need to be facing in any particular analog space that we're in. So. Yep, yep. I mean, there's a lot of deep stuff there. But the whole issue of context is something I would love to have a conversation just around context and attention, because I think there's something. Um, there are a lot of things there that I don't quite understand about context, because I, I don't I used to think context is everything. Context makes everything either work or not work, right? But but if context were everything, then then that would make postmodernism correct. And so there's gotta be a hole in that someplace. The context is not everything, but it's very important. So maybe we could talk about that sometime. Yeah, per perhaps it's a, like a foundation of what other information is built on within the particular yeah, and, and it probably narrative. comes back to the whole issue of narrative and, you know, John Verveig. Oh, I know what I wanted to say to you before we check off is next week, I'm having a conversation between Jonathan Ver or John Verveke and Wolfgang Smith. And I'm very excited about that. Wolfgang Smith is the, the uh, physicist philosopher who has written a lot about the quantum measurement problem. And um, <clears throat> so he and John are going to be having a conversation. And we might be able to bring up this issue about narrative. So if you happen to think of any questions that you would like me to ask. And okay. um, in that conversation, I'm going to have it on the 14th. Wolfgang Smith has been on your channel before, correct? Yes, yes. Right, I right. I think I remember. And he talked about the quantum measurement problem. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so it's been very helpful to me to have this conversation today because now I under, understand how the measurement problem is also in the macro world. <laughs> very much so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I only scratched the surface. There's so many. I've been in meetings where there was, uh, I mean, hard arguments back and forth about how to measure something because, uh, we weren't able to measure what they wanted or we were scrapping too many parts and they wanted the parts to be good parts. So we had to tweak the machinery so that it would pass things that were marginal. So it's, uh, <laughs> well, we've it, seen that happen. Haven't we? <laughs> yes. Yes. I've seen that happen more than once actually. Um, so yeah, I will think about that. I, I you know, and the other thing too, uh, about measurement is a, like cognitive, and how they measure that. Um, you know, if we have a hard time measuring an inch uniformly, how, how do they measure that uniformly? And what is the master? What do they use to calibrate the measurements? I don't know anything about that. So maybe I'll do some, some digging into that before. So I can maybe throw some questions your way to. Well, I mean, that, that digs into the whole thing with Michael Levin too, who's, who's, been working really hard to take cognition all the way down to the cell level and maybe even below that into the quantum level um, to see how cognition works out in physics. So yeah, there's a lot to be explored here.
Well, this has been great, Brad, just absolutely great. It's completely refreshing to me. I was tired when we started the conversation, but I'm completely energized now. So, Uh, If you think of things that you want to run by me, you can, you know, send them my way. I will do that and get your phone charged up for next time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. All right. Bye-bye.